if you are new, uh, let me just say welcome to you. We are in the midst of a series where we're studying somebody from the Old Testament, the older portions of the scripture, that quite frankly is a hero to those who know his story. You see, he was a Jewish royal prince, but when uh, Judah was conquered uh, and, and they were all taken off, taken to Babylon as slaves, he, as being one of the royal ones, was targeted as being somebody that they would use as a slave in the palace of the king of Babylon. As a result, they trained him in the new ways of the new culture, things that were very pagan, that were, dis, that were quite frankly offensive to Daniel. And on top of that, they emasculated him because they didn't want him being a threat to the harem and, and the queens of the, of the palace. And so he could have easily played the victim card. But if you know his story at all, you'll know that he was not playing the victim card, but rather he influenced kings and kingdoms. And there are things that we can learn there because I'm pretty confident whether or not you're a person of faith in Jesus Christ or you're, you're an atheist or whatever, you may not be pleased and likely not pleased with the current culture or context of America. And so it's very easy to become negative and to operate with a defeatism uh, in regards to our country. Or you can take cues from Daniel's life, how he thrived in the midst of a culture he despised, a culture that was offensive, and a culture that was inundating around him. But yet he thrived in the midst of it and influenced kings' hearts, three different kings, and therefore affected three different kingdoms. And so that's why we're studying the principles that we can see in his life today. And so we're going to be turning to the book of Daniel about his life. And, that, uh, and if you don't have a Bible, our ushers are walking down right now with Bibles, and we'd be glad to provide you one. And that Bible will be on page 833 to start. And then at the end of this message, we're going to go to uh, to 1 Timothy chapter 3, which is on page 1,115 in that Bible. So as part of this series, we've looked at a lot of different things about, yes, how Daniel did not play the victim card and, and how he ended up actually choosing with hope, whether he was going to die or not, that he was going to serve one God and one God alone. But in the midst of a journey of years, because we're getting in years into his time now with the story we're going to be looking at today. It's very easy, even if you have a faith that is very strong in God, it's very easy that in certain compartments, if you will, of your life to find faith and confidence in something else other than God. In other words, putting your hope in something that is not God but perhaps other. And you don't realize it because, you know, you love God, you're serving God, but you don't see or the revelation that there is this area of your life where maybe you've put confidence in something that's not hope at all. So as we've looked at hope over the last couple of weeks, you know, first week, how hope played a big part of how Daniel uh, thrived in Babylon. But we looked at things that he did not do that would kill his hope. It was the behaviors that, that he portrayed that, that did not cause him to lose hope. So there are things in life that kill hope, and we looked at that last week. But today, what I want to speak to is, again, things that are false hope, things that are very easy for you and I, even if we're filled with faith, could easily fall prey to, because they're very subtle in their start. So let me begin with just offering some of those false hopes. First one being this. 
having hope and confidence to do what is next in your life based on your heritage or your position. You come from a particular heritage where maybe somebody is very, uh, you come from a line of successful people, and so your confidence in doing what is next is rooted in that success of predecessors or in your personal position that maybe you've acquired. Maybe by what you've earned or perhaps by what you were given due to somebody else. This same kind of false hope can be found in another person where you have hope in somebody else's history and or their position. So case in point, my first position as youth pastor in Missouri, I, I, I got out of college and I was given a lot of great opportunities to, for full-time ministry, not because I was so well-established and experienced, but because my father had been in youth ministry for 20 years at that point. You see, I was riding on the coattails of my heritage, and I was being given opportunities and afforded opportunities that had nothing to do with my history as far as what I've accomplished. And so I had a lot of confidence built into the fact that my dad was a successful youth pastor. And that status and that kind of uh, position and thinking actually was exposed in my first year when things got hard. When I realized that, you know what, I, it means nothing as to what God has done in my father's life if the same things haven't been done in my life. And so quickly I discovered that if I don't put confidence in God and God alone, I will be exposed for being a fraud. And in this case, it was just a small level of thread that was woven throughout me where I built, developed a confidence in something that was done by my my father and not what God was doing through me. And so I needed to shift my confidence back towards God and what God would do in my life and through my life. A second one would be this, resources. How many times have we made decisions in life, big ones, huge decisions in our lives, and we don't go to God in our confidence in prayer, but we make the decisions based on our confidence of our bank accounts. You know what I mean? Big decisions, buying houses, changing jobs, and it's all built on whether or not we have financial resources that we are confident in. Forget the fact that you haven't even prayed about it. You see what I'm talking about? Is your hope in making that decision rooted in what you have, or is it rooted in the fact that God has guided you because you've prayed about it and you've sought his leadership? Again, it's very easy to... Be a faithful person to love God, but not really put your hope in him with big decisions if you have a lot. And quite frankly, we as Americans have a lot. We find a lot of our confidence in what we have, or perhaps in our skills that have been proven to be exemplary. And so we think that I can make this big decision because I can navigate it. I'm gifted. You know what I mean? We don't say it out loud, but we think it, and we make decisions based on it. Or we make big decisions based on the intellect, you know, that I'm pretty smart, you know, and I'll, I'll be able to figure it out, because I'm not only smart, I have skills to go with it, and if everything fails, it's like, we have money that'll bail us out. Where's your hope really found? Is it found in God, or is it found in that money, skills, or intellect? How about this? When you want to see change in the environments around you, 
and, and, you're, and you're looking and it's like, I don't like the direction of our country. And so instead of saying, God, you have to make the changes, we start putting our hope based on the next president or the next leader or the next governor. We believe in political movements, but political movements come and go. How often have we thought that all we have to have is the right person in the presidency to choose the right judges, to choose the right people and the, uh, the, you know, the different secretaries and so on. And we start thinking, this is truly going to change America. It's man. I don't care what political background they come from. If your hope in changing America is found in a political point of view, you're going to be found disappointed. Because it's God who appoints leaders, and it's God who can change hearts. It's God that can move even people who despise him to do the things that are at his good wishes. So where is your hope truly found in the future of America? In a political movement or in God? How about hope for the new idea? This is another one that I think we fall prey to, especially the younger you are. You see, when you're younger and you've been hearing about what your parents have taught you for a lot of years, there's just a natural tendency that when you graduate from high school, it's your time to explore. Perhaps everything I've been taught is just secondary to what something might be greater. And so new ideas come. It's very easy to think that what you've been taught throughout your life that's been taught through rooted historical good theology or or good life experiences and then all of a sudden they get out and they read the social platforms of blogging and they discover there's new ideas that might actually be better well humanity has been around a long time and if there is some new idea that has just now hit the scene that supposedly is a new idea of understanding god you probably should begin to be skeptical God has not changed. His word has been written for a long time. And new ideas can probably lead you the wrong direction. Entire countries have followed new ideas only to their, quite frankly, failure. 2004, I visited the country of Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe at that time had been about... uh, was 20 years into its new style of government and leadership. You see, in the late 70s, Zimbabwe was originally known as Rhodesia. It was an apartheid country, a former English colony. Apartheid, as evil as it is, and it was evil in the way it treated human beings of different colors of skin. The one thing you, will, you need to know about Rhodesia in the 70s is at that point, Rhodesia's economy and its ability to produce agriculturally, it could produce enough grain to feed the entire continent of Africa. In 2004, just 20 years later, they could not produce enough grain to feed their own. How did it get there? A new idea, Mugabe. He was the leader that that sold that we got to get rid of apartheid, which he was right. But nobody checked into whether or not what he was offering was a better solution. And in this case, he started with saying all the right things, but nobody looked into his life. Within five years, his tyrancy began to show itself. And he became 
a, <laughs> just quite frankly, a horrific dictator. The money at the time when he took over, a single bill of theirs would require five to one to get an American dollar, which isn't bad. So their currency, five to one, so five of their dollars to match our dollar, that would work, right? By the time I was there, I was holding a $100,000 bill of theirs that was not even worth a quarter in American dollars. The inflation was so bad. But see, people bought into him. He's the hope to get out of what was evil in apartheid, not checking to see if the new idea is worthy to give ourselves to. Again, today with social media platforms, there's a lot of new ideas on how to interpret who God is. And it can lead our youngest astray easily. That's why we keep pointing to the word and not some new idea. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that is a truth that needs to be instilled more deeply in all of us. But how about this last false hope that again, can easily befall any of us. And that is when we fall into the trap of having our hope built into somebody who affected our lives positively. We begin to hope. Imagine thinking the person that you've met in your life. If you're a person of faith in Jesus Christ, think about the person that most influenced you towards Jesus Christ. What if your hope in Jesus is subtly based on the hope of their faithfulness, your friend's faithfulness. Guess what happens if that friend who led you to Jesus or influenced you to Jesus becomes unfaithful? If your hope was rooted in that person through that person to Jesus, then your faith all of a sudden is traumatized. Case in point in my life, the person who was speaking and influencing me most greatly outside of my parents was this man who spoke at summer camp for several summers in a row that I went to. It was while at camp when he was speaking that I gave my life over to Jesus Christ in finality, full lordship. The following summer, this is all in high school, the following summer, it was while this man was speaking powerfully that I surrendered to the call of full-time ministry along with 50 of my friends. And to this day, those friends that I know are still serving Jesus from off of that call. This man who was very powerful in communicating the word of God, shortly after I graduated from high school, was exposed from having violated young boys. The strange thing that is about this is that this man had stayed at our house multiple times and in my bedroom multiple times with me in that room as well. I never experienced any of those things. However, it, it really rocked me to my core because if this is one of your spiritual fathers in your life and your hope in Jesus being the answer is rooted in the faithfulness of that person, it will destroy you, and it nearly did. I had to wrestle through, is what happened to me invalid? Because the messenger that I responded to has fallen. Is what happened to me still valid? I had to ask those big questions. And in the end of the day, I had to decide, no, my hope was never in that man. My hope was in the message that that man shared which was about Jesus.
But do you see my point? Just subtly, you can end up putting your hope in the wrong spot, but yet in a good context. You're, you're thinking this person's speaking the word of God or, or I'm doing things for God. But meanwhile, you don't, you, you don't realize that you're starting to show confidence in your own skills or in the skills of another or in your heritage and your story instead of God himself. So I think we need to really lean in and take notice that Daniel did not put his stock in being a royal prince. He did not put his stock in being a person that's in the line of David. He didn't put his stock in any prophet that he had heard from. He put his stock in the words that came from God and God himself. And you'll see it in Daniel 6, which is the story that is most known about Daniel, and that's the story of the lion's den. To give context before we read it, this is a case where he's serving a new king. So this is king number two that he's now served in Babylon. And in this case, all the enchanters and other wise people that, that Daniel oversaw were jealous of him and they wanted to entrap him. So how do you entrap somebody that, whose character is so well known as being good? Well, you take what makes him good and you turn it on him. They knew that Daniel relied upon God and God alone. They knew the patterns of Daniel and how he worshiped his God. So if we can figure out a way that we can use his worship of God against him, then we can dethrone him from being the mayor of Babylon and the chief of all the astrologers. Okay, so how do we do that? So they created this plan to get the king to write a law that you can only pray to the king of Babylon, which is Darius, you can only pray to him for 30 days. So it was exclusive worship for 30 days, but exclusive to somebody that was not God. So this is where we pick up from Daniel, the example of making sure your hope is in the right place. So starting in verse 10, it says, Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home, to his upstairs room, where the windows were open towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So then they went to the king and spoke to him about this royal decree. King, did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any God or human being except for you, your majesty, would be thrown to the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is, the, who is one of the exiles from Judah? There is one who is from the exiles of Judah who pays no attention to you, your majesty, or the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. And when the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to somehow rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. You see, he loved Daniel. He respected Daniel. Verse 15, Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of Medes and Persians, no decree or edict the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, 
may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. If you know the story that Daniel spends the day with the lions, we don't get any kind of description if he was petting them, hanging out with them, playing chase with a ball of yarn. Have no idea. We don't know. All we know is that the next day, when King Darius opened the seal and looked in, there's Daniel smiling like, hey, king, I'm still here. And the king celebrates that the God of Daniel saved him. But I want to pull something out of this story that speaks to this false hope context. What we have to look at is that Daniel, because his hope was in God, his hope in God did not change due to circumstances. So that's one thing you need to really let resonate with you. Regardless of the circumstances around Daniel, he did not change where his hope was placed. He did not change his pattern of prayer. It was still three times a day. He still opened his windows so all could see that he was praying towards Jerusalem. He did not change the content of his prayers because at the end of verse 10, it says that he continued, as he had always done, to pray prayers of gratefulness or thankfulness. So he continued, even though his life is now on the line for these prayers, he's still praying in the same pattern. He's still praying with the same content of gratefulness of all things. And he did not change who he prayed to. The circumstances had shifted. They were no longer allowed to pray to God. They were required to pray to the king and the king only. But regardless of that, in spite of all that had happened, even though he probably could have worked one with God saying, you know, I've been faithful in all these other things. So can I just, you know, for, you understand, just 30 days. No, he did not change the pattern, the content, or to whom he prayed. And as a result, Daniel's reputation of serving God continually did not change. King Darius says, may the God who you continually serve save you. You see, the reputation of Daniel was that he was rooted in one person and one person only. Not by the kings, not by all the gods, not Marduk, the God of Babylon, but rather the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh. And that's where he prayed. And it had already been on display that Yahweh as God was greater than all gods and the Lord of all kings. That had already been said by Nebuchadnezzar, the king. But the reputation of Daniel being persistent and trusting and hoping in God alone was on full display and known. Turn over to Daniel chapter 12. There's another thing that I think we can draw out of Daniel's life about not being caught up in false hope. So he didn't have hope. He didn't lose his hope just because the circumstances around him changed. He didn't, you know, I think a lot of people, they lose their hope when the circumstances change, when they lose their job, they lose a family member, they lose somebody close to them, they, they, they go in through a financial struggling period, uh, you name it, there's things that change all around us and it rocks us to our core and we start to doubt God. Why? It's because it starts exposing that your hope was in those things rather than God. But with Daniel, it didn't matter what happened around him. He continued to serve God. But look at what happens when something affects Daniel in such a way that he doesn't understand what's going on. And he's troubled by it. 
It's the first time you see Daniel kind of show any glimpses of being somewhat hesitant. So Daniel chapter 12, and, and there's a vision that's just been released to Daniel that really shocks him and troubles him. So beginning in verse 1, at that time, Michael, who is an angel, uh, the great prince who protects your people will arise. There will be a time of distress such as not has happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is written in, and found in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, roll up and, and, and place the seal on these words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase in knowledge. <laughs> then Daniel looked and, and there before him stood two others and one on this bank of the river and one on the other side. And one of them said to the man clothed in linen who is above the waters of the river, how long will it be before these things actually happen? The man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river lifted his right hand and his left hand towards the heaven and I heard him swear by him who lives forever saying, it will be for a time, times, and a half a time. In other words, three and a half years. When the power of the holy people has been finally broken, all these things will be completed. Daniel, completely perplexed, says this, I hear you but I don't understand. Have you ever felt that with God? I hear you, but I don't understand. The response was this. Go your way, Daniel, because the words are rolled up and sealed until the end of time. Then he goes on to explain it, and he restates the same thing in verse 13. As for you, Daniel... You'll go, the way to the, go your, you'll go your way till the end, and you will rest. In other words, you'll pass away. But then at the end of days, you'll rise up, you'll resurrect, and you'll receive your unlauded inheritance. What answer did Daniel just get there? You're never going to know. In fact, all these things are going to happen after you die. You will not know them. But at the end, Daniel, by the way, you have hope because you'll be resurrected to join the Lord in his work. That's basically what I was told. It's not for you to know. It's not for you to understand. It's not in your time. You're just going to have to trust in me. That's how Daniel ends. The book of Daniel ends with saying, Daniel, you're just going to have to trust me. You're just going to have to trust me because you're going to never know these things. Ever been there? I want us to turn to close this message to 1 Timothy chapter 3. The beauty of the consistency of Scripture is amazing to me. Because I am talking to a group of you that are on this side of the cross. Because so much has happened since then. I mean, Daniel's hearing about a resurrection and there's not been a resurrection at that point. But you and I, we're on the other side of a resurrection. 
Jesus' resurrection. And so we can understand it a little bit more because Jesus is the one that says there will be a day when all those who have already passed away and those who are still alive on the earth, when Jesus comes back, all will be resurrected, whose names are found in the book. All that says in Daniel is also said in the New Testament and in the book of Revelation. But Paul, who's writing 1 Timothy, he's about to die himself. These are his final thoughts being given to his successor, Timothy. He's hoping that he can go back and spend time with Timothy, but he's not sure that's going to happen. So what would your final thoughts be to be given to your successor? Well, you'd want your thoughts to be given in such a manner that your successor will succeed beyond, right? You'd want to give them everything they would need to succeed beyond. So here's where he gives some key points to make sure that Timothy succeeds well, that his hope is not led astray, but is rooted and solid and anchored. So beginning in verse 15 of chapter 3, Paul speaking, if I am delayed, or if I don't even come, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Let that sink for a moment. Paul says to his successor, if I don't make it back, then you need to cling to and stay with the church of the living God. Because That's where God is going to use the church as the pillar and place where the truth foundation can be put into a person's life. So the church is the place where you gather, you hear, you receive truth so that you can have truth be your pillar, not some hopeless idea. So the truth is discovered as part of the teaching that happens at the church. Now, he goes on to explain this more fully. So go to chapter 4, verse 7. It's continuing his discussion with them. He says, have nothing to do with godless myths or old wives' tales. In other words, new ideas. Don't get caught up in some creative idea of a mixing of of the gospel with something else. Or some new fantasy fantasical idea of God, but stick to what you know. And so he says, you will then be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourishing, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. So in other words, if you stay true to the teachings you've been given, you will stay true for the sake of your hearers. Continuing on, it says, have nothing to do with godless myths, okay? So for physical training, is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. So this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Here it is. It is why we labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God. Not in anything else. We've put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, and especially of those who believe. So therefore, Command and teach these things that our hope is found in the living God, the Savior of all people. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you just because you're young, but set an example for all believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. And until I come, do what? Devote yourself 
to the public reading of scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect this gift, which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Wow. So he just says this. The church is meant to be a place where people can come, hear truth, and be able to stand upon it securely. So if the church fails to teach truth, we have hindered an entire generation and generations to come. The church is meant to be a place where truth is received. So therefore, that church is a church that commits to teaching the word of truth. He says, the scriptures are what we are to teach. I am not giving you any new idea. In fact, I've heard people come to our service and say, sometimes it's a little too old for me. I like the new ways of teaching. Well, what's the new ways of teaching? Now, trust me, there's a lot of ways you can teach the word of truth. But the point is, we've raised a generation and generations of people that like to be tickled differently. We want our ears to be pleased, not to be stepped on or hurt or hindered. Maybe I'm living incorrectly. Maybe my wisdom isn't what I thought it to be. And the word of truth will expose those things. People don't want to hear that. We're also seeing that he says, you know, we should commit in verse 7 and 8, we should commit to spiritual training. We should commit to spiritual training. Physical training's good, but it's not as important as spiritual training. I give you today's church. When people will spend thousands of dollars on the athletic training of their kids, but complain about a $300 retreat to speak into their kids' lives through the scriptures and the word. God, forgive us if we've complained about the cost of investing in the next generation with truth, but willing to spend whatever it takes to help our kids do well athletically. I work out. I coach sports. I'm not anti-sports. But it's not most important. And God forgive me if I've made that more important than spiritual training. Ultimately, he says, our hope isn't in the physical. Our hope isn't in new ideas and godless myths. Our hope is found, as he says in verse 10, our hope is found in a living God who is the Savior of the entire world. Nothing else. If you sit here today, and we've gone through several things where hope can easily be stolen from us, it's very true that yes, we can be found guilty for having misplaced our hope. Even pastors and spiritual leaders can slightly put their confidence in something other than God. We've got to keep coming back to the word of truth and letting the church speak into our lives from out of that word that we can all be found walking with God. Let's pray. So Father, I know, I know that it's very tempting to follow after people who are very charismatic in their personality and very 
capable as communicators or, and they come up with new ideas how to redefine God or, or maybe they're teaching the truth of God but we become en- enamored by them instead of enamored by Jesus. God, forgive us. Or forgive us when we put our confidence in the flesh, in the skills we have or in our resources. Forgive us. If that's why we have hope in the things that lie next. God, I pray that if there is an area of false hope rooted in any of us here in this room, that you would expose it, that we may come into a a relationship with you again, that that area of our life is rooted back in you, lest we fall at the unfaithfulness of the other thing. So God, speak to our hearts now in this moment, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So the final two verses of that passage in 1 Timothy 3 says this, Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress or your maturation. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. You know, at this church, we speak a lot about this term that's found in the scriptures that was written in the original Greek called oikos. It was meant to describe the relational sphere of influence where we live and do life and those we have relationship with. Reality is what Paul said to Timothy is that if we do not watch our doctrine and our lives closely, it not only hinders you, but it hinders those around you, your oikos. So it's, it's so important to understand that we have to establish truth as being prominent in our lives, not giving up on the spiritual teaching that we've been given, but continuing to apply those things in our lives. For our sakes, yes, but for the sake of others. If you are here this morning and you'd like somebody to pray with you, there'll be people underneath the cross who'd be glad to do so. But as you go out this door, know that there is one living God and that hope is found in what he did through his son, Jesus Christ, which was to die for you so that you can have hope for eternal life. Amen. You are dismissed.